Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I thought I'd do an educational episode about rips. So I reached out and brought into the beach shack Rob Brander, aka Dr. Rip. He's someone who has studied rips for many, many years and he knows them inside out. He also speaks about growing up in Canada and then when he moved to Australia. So now let's have a listen to my chat with Rob. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. It's a long-time friend, and I've known uh, this guy for many, many years around the beaches. Uh, welcome, Rob Brander. Hey, thank you. good to be here, Bruce. Mate, also known as Dr. Rip, but we'll get into the rips uh, a bit later. But let's start with, you know, a lot of listeners from Canada, so it'd be an interesting uh, chat for them. But tell us about, you know, you grew up over there or you came to Australia from Canada? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Canada. I was born just outside of Toronto in Ontario, which is the biggest city in, in Ontario, just in the suburbs. You know, a typical Canadian lifestyle, I suppose. We had pretty short summers, but for me, the highlight every year was we would go on holiday with my family to a place called Cape Cod on the east coast of the U.S., not far from Boston. And that was an ocean vacation, beach vacation. And, you know, two weeks out of the year, that's what you kind of look forward to. And that's where I got my love of the ocean. Uh, having said that, there wasn't any real surf beaches where we were. And and yeah, and we also grew up next to Lake Ontario. Literally, it was two kilometers down the road, which is one of the biggest lakes in the world, and it gets ocean-sized waves. So I always had a bit of a connection with, with water. Were there any type of rips there? Or back in those days, you, you probably wouldn't have understood what a rip was? Nah, not at all. I mean, as a kid, you know, you'd hear your parents would say, watch out for the undertow, which I had no idea what they were talking about. And none of the beaches I visited at the lakes, at least the lake I was at, Lake Ontario, there was no rips. It was, it was, it's either flat calm or if, it, if the wind is blowing, you get waves, but I didn't know what a rip was. And then I did, uh, I went to university and I was studying physical geography. And my first year lecturer was a coastal geomorphologist. And, and I thought what he was doing was pretty cool. And he would show slides of his field work, doing experiments on beaches. And, and then at the end of the first year, I just sort of said, you hire students to help. And he said, yep but you got to get your scuba diving license, which I did. And a few years later, I started working with them, and we would go and do these experiments on beaches in the Great Lakes and the Atlantic coast, trying to measure waves and currents and sediment transport. But there's a whole bunch of things we were measuring, but I never saw a rip. I'd studied it. You know, he'd show us diagrams, so I knew what they were, but I don't think I ever saw a rip current until I came to Australia. And then what was the reason you came to Australia? <laughs> Yeah, why wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, we were we were diving, scuba diving, you know, for months at a time in water that was anywhere from 8 to 10 degrees Celsius. It was freezing, right? And, you know, we were diving also in the sort of autumn going into winter, so it was cold. 
And then we received this thing in the mail from a place called the Coastal Studies Unit at the University of Sydney, and they have an annual report. This is like the late 80s. And whereas we're freezing, this report was just full of them in shorts and bathing suits and people running around on the beach having a good time. And I remember us thinking, this is where we need to be. So when I finished my master's degree, I wanted to take a year off traveling, and Australia was was the number one destination. So I was going to go to a bunch of countries, but I started off with Australia. And that was, yeah, I wanted to see Australia and I wanted to see real beaches. Um, but I was also kind of angling for a PhD. I wanted to do a PhD overseas. I didn't know at that time where I would do it. So I came to Australia as a backpacker in 1992. Am I right in saying you arrived at Tamarama, ended up at Tamarama Beach? Yeah. So, I mean, when I came in 92 as a backpacker, I stayed at the Coogee Beach Backpackers, which used to be at the top of Beach Road. And I remember walking from Coogee to Bondi along the coastal path, and it just blew my mind. I remember thinking, people actually live here? You know, they, they live? I remember walking through Bronte, looking at people lounging on their balconies. This is before it all got, you know, gentrified and built up. And I, I think, I cannot believe people live here. And then I, at Bondi, the first day I went to Bondi, it was packed. This is January. I caught a wave body surfing. You know, probably wasn't a good wave, but for me, I thought this is phenomenal. This is such an amazing thing. And I was kind of hooked on it then. And then I also had made some contacts at the University of Sydney. So the, the seed to doing a PhD was started then. And then tell us about uh, a time, because I remember I started working as a lifeguard around 1991, 92. And you were down at Tamarama Beach there and you ended up a part of the surf club and you ended up, I think, a caretaker of the surf club at some stage. Yeah, I just realized I didn't ask your, answer your first question. So I remember as a backpacker, Tamarama was awesome. And then I came back a year later to do my PhD on RIPS and I was looking for a place to live and, and the first shared place I got was just up on Fletcher Street, just up from the surf club. And, you know, you'd go down to the beach all the time and one time I, I didn't know anybody and I saw the, the, the surf club members sitting around and I just started up a chat and said, oh, you know, what do you guys do and how do you join? Because I was looking to join something and they said, oh, join the club. So I did the training. This is 93 and got my bronze medallion and, and was patrolling. And then at the time, the, the president of the, the Tamarama Surf Club was Jack Bluey Mays, who was this sort of older, he must have been about late 60s or 70, but he was an ex-old surfing legend, really. But he had a bit of a reputation as being a bit of a tie. He was the president and the caretaker, and he used to sort of sunbathe nude in the balcony. And <laughs> uh, he eventually got in a fight with somebody. I won't mention any names, but he got kicked out. So I said, well, what are they going to do? Like, who's going to be the new caretaker? And, and they said, well, you have to apply for it. And I thought, well, you know, I had no money. I was on this crappy scholarship. I thought, well, I'll apply. And then the surf club being the surf club, it took him about six months to, to actually get around to, to choosing somebody. And I think it was a close call. Um, but I got it. So I moved in April 1994 or 95, and it was just the best gig in the world. Mm. Imagine, as you said, back in the day when you first came out here, you stayed at Coogee Backpackers, walked the coastline. Imagine then someone would have said, oh, you're going to be living in that building, which is pretty much the people that don't know Tamarama, it's a building right on top of the headland. It looks like you're on top of the water. Yeah. I thought about that a lot. I always thought, who would, if somebody had told me when I did that first coastal walk that you'll be living here in a, in a couple of years' time, I would have said, hi, oh, you're crazy. But it's just magnificent. And, 
and at the time, I don't know if it's still the case now, but most surf clubs used to have a caretaker, which is basically somebody to look after the joint, make sure it's safe, you know, when there's functions, run that, and then clean it up and all that. But Tamarama was great because unlike the other beaches in the eastern suburbs, there was nothing there. There was no shops. Um, at night, there was no reason for people to be there. So it was quite quiet. You had your club members, and that was it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful beach. It's also extremely dangerous, but it was just it was just a gift. Well, let's talk about Tamarama because it is probably one of the most dangerous beaches on the East Coast. What experience did you have there? Is that the first time you started really acknowledging what rips could do? No, because I, because I, you know, when I had when I backpacked, I got an appreciation for the the surf beaches in Australia, and I, like I said, I started body surfing. And it's funny because some people don't know how to body surf. I've got lots of friends from Canada who would visit; and they just had no idea. But I sort of got into it right away, and and it just appealed to me. And then. How I got into rip currents was in that backpacking trip. I met this uh, PhD student at Sydney Uni, Ian Turner, who now runs uh, the uh, Water Research Laboratory at UNSW. But anyway, he took me, he said, oh, I'll take you to the beach. And we went down to Bronte and we were standing um, above the pool looking out and Ian's going, oh, look at that rip. Isn't that great? And I, I remember saying, where? where? Where is it? I've, never, I've always wanted to see a rip. Where is it? And I couldn't see it. And and that's what got me interested in rips because I thought, how can you study something and then when it's in front of you, you can't see it? And then I found out how dangerous they are, you know, so many drownings caused by rips, but but no one had really measured them. So that was when I started thinking, well, if I'm going to do a PhD, I'd like to do rips. So I started doing rips as my PhD, measuring them. But by the, when I moved into Tamarama, yeah, I think I'd done all my experiments. We did the experiments up at Palm Beach, putting lots of instruments in, but but Tamarama was was at a different level. Because Tamarama is a narrow pocket beach, and it it, it, it just you know, capture if there's if there's no waves anywhere else, there's going to be a wave at Tamarama, and there's almost always a rip, and sometimes there's two. So I got to appreciate really gnarly rips at Tamarama. Yeah, people overseas that are listening, uh, probably a lot of them have never experienced what a, a rip is or what a rip looks like. So maybe we start from the beginning and, and explain. There's so many different types of rips, but what did you? experience when you started uh the the rip the uh, there's different types and it, and you know there was different names no one had really come up with a good classification there was a million different names to describe the the same rip but i think the most common type of rip is the one that sits in a deep channel like a river between shallow banks and all of our beaches at least in mostly in sydney and pretty much the whole southeast coast have got lots of sandbars moving around when the water comes in, it's got to go back out, and, and this channel is one of the best ways. So they were easy to measure because you could see them, right? They look like these dark gaps between the white water. There's your rip. You can put in instruments. You can put in dye. You can put in whatever. And in terms of teaching people how to spot rips, they're the easiest. I mean, I think teaching people how to spot rips is pretty hard, but if you're going to start somewhere, the thing is they look like dark gaps, and you got white water, so I've got the saying, white is nice, green is mean. If you look at the beach, you're looking for these narrow green gaps, maybe five, ten meters heading offshore, and, and that's a starting point for educating people about them. And then also you've came up with the dye experiment, so that can really show people watching the, the purple dye that's in the water. It moves with the rip, and you can see exactly where that rip moves to. Yeah. The dye was awesome, so I never used dye, but when I was doing my PhD, I would go on field trips with my supervisor, um, Andy Short, and he would always chuck in dye for the students, and, and it was like, wow, this is this is cool. And and then I started doing that when I was teaching, and then I thought, well, 
why should it just be students who see this stuff? So I started doing these community presentations um, at Tamarama and I would always, about beach safety, and I would finish off by putting the die in the rip. And for a lot of people, it's one, it's a bit of a wow factor because it just looks awesome. You see this purple blob just heading off really fast and really far. And it's amazing how many people can't see rips and they don't really know what they do. And, and then when they see the die, just go way offshore really fast. Um, it's like, wow, it brings the rip to life. And they remember it. Tell us a bit about the study, though, over the years, because the theories years ago, people thought there's undertows, the rip pulled you underwater. Uh, you got taken out to, I remember growing up as a kid, if you, if you get caught in a rip, you'll end up in New Zealand. All these theories are myths that are around. And so did you, you would have heard those uh, at the beginning when you started, but how long before you started realising, hang on a minute, rips don't behave like we've been saying they, they do. Yeah, pretty quick. I mean, I was engaged with rips, so I was studying them. I was jumping in them, and you know, I, I took a, I got into boogie boarding in a big way. So of course, you jump in the rip, and it takes you at the back. But you soon real, and it's true, right? Like every textbook you pick up, even today, most of the textbooks will show this classic diagram where the rip goes beyond the breaking waves and way beyond. And you find yourself teaching that to students. And then we would do experiments, and we jump in the rip, and we put in dye, and you'd go in circles. Right, So you, you wouldn't go out past the waves. The rip would circulate you back in onto the sandbar. <laughs> and you'd go, oh, well, that's not what they normally do. Normally they go way offshore. And you'd keep doing it and they keep going in circles. And, and you start to think, well, what's going on here? And then a bunch of scientists, not me, but some guys in the States, developed these drifters that you, they float in the water like a person would float. And you attach GPS on them and they, they track the rip current flow. And and 90% of the time, they just went in circles. And this was done in all sorts of different beaches. And that really challenged the existing paradigm to say, well, hang on, the textbooks haven't got it right. Rip currents don't go offshore all the time. In fact, most of the time, they will recirculate. And that, and that had huge implications towards beach safety and what you tell people they should do when they're stuck in a rip. And I noticed that too with, you know, obviously being a lifeguard for so many years, most of the people we would rescue that were caught in a rip would only be like 20 metres off the shore. They'd obviously try and swim back into where they came from. And back in those days, we had to work a lot of the time on our own. So we had to have, you know, three, four, five people hanging onto the rescue board. And we found we just drift across to the sandbank and everyone could stand up. So we started to realise this as well as just by working day to day and watching what people do and their behaviours. Yeah, and... You know, I've always listened to lifeguards. I've always listened to lifeguards and surfers because their knowledge, they, they know what's going on. You might not have the scientific terminology, but who cares? But it's experience, right? I mean, the best way to understand what rips do is to experience them. You know, not most tourists haven't experienced rips before. So when they get in, one, they always panic and or they try and swim back to the beach because they don't understand why they're being taken offshore so fast. They know they want to get back to the beach. So to them... The obvious thing is to do is swim back against the rip, and that just makes the situation worse. And you know, but you can't you can't blame them because you know, like coming from Canada, I didn't know anything. Who, how would you know anything about rips? And that's what I found. I found that people where they enter into the water off the beach, and they got taken whether they went out or left or right or whichever way they went, they always wanted to come back to where they entered. And I said to them, why do you, oh, but that's where I went in. So I thought I had to get back out the same spot. And obviously by doing that, you're swimming straight back into the rip. Yep. 
But it makes sense, right? That's they just want to get back to the beach. That's all they want to do. Rips are pretty insidious, right? They're pretty. They're not evil, but for somebody who doesn't know what to do, it's no. I'm amazed that more people don't drown in rips. To be honest, I mean, it's because we have we have lifeguards and lifesavers. But you think about all the unpatrol beaches. I think the reason more people don't drown in rips is because how they often behave, which is that you know somebody doesn't know what's going on, and you know they try to swim this way, try and do that, but before you know it, the rips actually taking them back into shallow water. And they stand up without having rescued themselves. It just happened. Yeah, and probably didn't even realise that they're in any sort of danger, some people. No, no. Now, there was a test at uh, Bondi. I remember you doing. You came down with all these drifters uh, and you put them in at Bondi. Can you explain why you did that and, and what the outcome was? Yeah, so um, back in 2009, I was over in the States, U.S. on sabbatical. I was in Monterey, California with Jamie McMahon, who was a big rip current scientist. And he had just published a study using these drifters that had basically shown that most of the time rips go in circles and maybe we should rethink how rips work. At the same time, Surf Life Saving launched a big public rip current education campaign, which said, you know, if you get caught in a rip, swim parallel or to escape a rip, swim parallel. And we were sitting there going, whoa, this is this is this is maybe not the best way they should do it. So we got in contact with people we knew at Surf Life Saving and, and to their credit, they said, well, OK, if we've got it wrong, we need to test this because when Jamie's results came out, you had you had people everywhere say, no, that's that's not what rips do. Rips go way out. And this was scientists. This was lifeguards, whoever. No, that's not that's not what our rips do. So we got this um, grant with Surf Life Saving and, and, uh, and the government, the Australian Research Council, to test what should you do if you get stuck in a rip. So we got all these drifters, chucked them in rips, like heaps of them, and that would map the rip current flow. And then we would put people in with GPS on their heads and we would put a couple in and say, okay, well, you swim parallel this way, you swim parallel that way, you, you guys just float. And so we tracked the escape strategies. So we did this at a bunch of beaches and then we got the crazy idea to do it at Bondi, the busiest beach on the planet, well, not on the planet, but we did it in winter. And I think we had 35 of these drifters and we got you guys involved to help with the jet skis to pick the drifters up and drop them off. And we sort of took over the beach for about four or five hours and we did it three times and just nailed it. And we got this data set that's, you know, it was unbelievable. Like the, the circulation patterns on the entire beach with like, you know, sort of four or five rips along the beach. And, you know, we do a lot of these, these um, with the swimming measurements, what came out of all those experiments was that, Sometimes uh, swimming parallel is great. You can swim out of the rip and be out of it in, in a minute. Sometimes it's not so good because you end up swimming against the rip and you can't make it. And sometimes uh, floating was great, but every now and then you do get sped out the back. I guess the thing with floating was, you know, floating for the most part was successful, but it took a long time. And then the thing is, well, you got to factor in people's responses. Is somebody going to be okay with hanging out for five minutes knowing that they could be safe, right? So the upshot of all that was that you can't really tell people one single thing to do when you're caught in a rip based on our results, but based on my personal belief, you know, floating has to be the, has to be the way to go because you're saving energy. You know, it, it, if you're not a good swimmer, telling somebody to swim out of a rip doesn't sound appealing to them and floating yeah, it just, just, just works in most cases. Yeah, I agree. And I think after all the years of watching people in rips and rescue them, I think the best way to keep people calm is to float because they're not using their energy and they can think and yell out to maybe a board rider or someone else could be around. And 
What I've found, though, is a lot of people that go into rip say, I can swim, right? But what I've realized is they might be able to swim, say, 50, 50 strokes, 100 strokes, 200 strokes, but that's all they can do. So if you're in a rip and swimming against it back to, into the uh, shore, once you've done your 100 strokes and you're not standing up, you're done. You're going to be, done. yes, right, you're done, and you're going to be start panicking. So technically they can swim, but they're still not going to get themselves out of a rip. Is there a theory on how well of a swimmer you need to be to get yourself out of a rip? Oh, I don't know. I mean, most people overestimate their swimming ability anyway, right? Like, say, yeah, I'm a good swimmer because they can swim X laps in a pool. But swimming in the ocean is a totally different ballgame, right? There's waves to deal with. Um, you get the odd mouthful of salt water. Um, in terms of swimming strategy, you know, I've, when I get stuck in rips, and every now and then I jump on a rip and I just, you know, for a body surf or whatever, and I think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I got to get out of this. And I just sort of swim, if I want to get out of it, I swim gradually to the side by, by looking to where the waves are breaking, right? If there's a lot of waves breaking, that means it's shallower, you can probably stand up. But generally, I don't make it. And generally what happens is the rip has recirculated me to the sandbar already, you know? So, and the thing is, even if you know what you're doing, at least for my case, if I jump on a rip that's too much for me, you start to get those flutters. And I know exactly what's going on, but I think, I think if you're going to swim out of a rip, you don't sprint, right? You swim steady. But as you said, um, not, you know, the average person probably isn't going to last very long swimming. And from my experience as well is, is people drift across to the sandbank and I've watched people in the rip and they're watching other people sort of about five metres away standing about waist depth or knee depth on the sandbank. And even common sense doesn't kick in to say, well, I've just got to get to that person and I can stand up. They still try to continue to come back. So as you said before, the, the best way is you need to go to where the waves are breaking because generally that's where the sandbank is. Yeah, and that's often where they don't want to be, right? Because a lot of people, you forget, a lot of people don't like breaking waves. I mean, they, they go to the on vacation, they're going to go to the beach, they're going to swim, but they might not like breaking waves. And swimming towards the breaking waves doesn't seem like the right thing to do. But But you're right. And I think, I think what happens too is they see those people standing so close to them, safe and sound, and they, even when they do try to swim against them, there's a lot of water pouring off the, the bank into the rip, right? And, and you're swimming against that as well. And, and I think when they can't reach those people, it, it just ramps up their panic levels. Do you think with all the studies that you've done, and you've obviously asked the public about why they enter in certain areas of the beach, it, what came of that? Yeah, I mean, we did, um, we did you know, a thousand surveys of people telling us their experiences about being caught in a rip current. We've done lots of surveys of, of beachgoers. When we surveyed all these people who'd been stuck in rips before, the dominant thing was that they knew, well, not the dominant, but one of the things was that they, even when they knew what they should do when they're stuck in a rip, it kind of all went out the window um, when they're actually stuck because the, the panic response just kind of overrides common sense. But it's, it's actually frightening. I mean, we did this study um, about unpatrolled beaches last summer. So we went to a bunch of unpatrolled beaches. One was on the south coast, uh, Mary Beach, you know, really popular beach because it's got surrounded by caravan parks and, and other beaches as well. People are going there because it's close to their accommodation, right? They're, they're not going to jump in a car and they're not going to drive 25 kilometers to the nearest patrol beach. They're going to swim at the beach where they've paid their accommodation. 
and they know it's not patrol, but that that doesn't matter. What matters to them is they're going to go swimming at their beach. And and the other thing is, you know, we've always asked people, do you know what a rip current is? And, you know, maybe 50, 60% say yes. And then we say, well, here's a couple of pictures of a rip current. You know, can you spot it? Or we show them pictures and we say, where would you swim? And most people who think they know how to spot a rip can't, right? So when you think, when you put it that way, if you're swimming outside the flags, most people are at risk, right? They're at big risk if there's rips around. Also, you did a study with um, Bondi Rescue, the TV show, and a lot of people around the world have, have been watching that show. And you did the study about how much of an effect it had on people with their knowledge of water safety. Yeah. So I started watching Bondi Rescue because it was fun watching all the guys I knew, right? And the show ended up really from the get-go was much better than I was expecting, to be honest. But but what I found was, man, they're just pulling people out of rips. Most of the show is they're just pulling people out of rips. And I thought, you know, given the massive reach it had globally, I thought it must be having some impact. And it was sort of a fun study. But we did this rigorous study and we there was two parts to it. I had a student, Nikki, poor, poor Nikki, had to watch the first seven seasons, every episode, about four times. And she she sort of broke it down into all the different themes of incidents, whether it's rip or shark or whatever. And and then she found that, you know, rips rips dominated the content. And then she did a survey of people who'd watched Bondi Rescue and I'll go into all the questions, but we asked them lots of questions about various things. And what came out of that survey was that you had people overseas in England and other countries who all of a sudden knew a lot about rip currents and they knew about the importance of swimming between the flags and they wouldn't have got that information if there was no Bondi rescue and they just jumped on a plane and came to Australia, they wouldn't have had that information from any other source. So absolutely, it's increasing the awareness. And one thing the study did show is that in the early days, you know, the show would talk about rips and stuff, but it didn't really explain much. But I've noticed, you know, I think Ben Ben Davies um, has made a noticeable effort um, to really throw in more explanations about beach safety since then. Yeah, it has been a learning curve over that 16 years of, of Bondi Rescue. And I do get a lot of people sending messages on saying how much that they've learned or they've saved someone or they know of someone who's been saved because of watching Bondi Rescue. I believe too, I mean, back in the day, we did a lot of going to schools and showing rips and, and everything like that. But I found recently, and with Craig Reddington as well, putting people in the rips and they experiencing that, it's really helping. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I didn't know much. I I'd heard of Rido, um as a, as an Iron Man. I only found out about that he did school stuff and and took kids to the beach. I think we were on a some sort of ABC show about rips and and then and then we sort of reached out to each other. And I thought what he was doing was amazing. I mean, you know, he, he takes the kids to the beach or or they get to the beach. I don't know how, but but he's got all his foamies and he throws them on the boards and it's all supervised, of course. Course. And it just, like I said, it's, it's experiential and they go into the rip and they go, okay, well, that wasn't a bad, that wasn't a big deal. Um, that's huge, but I don't know how many other people do that. Um, and of course you can't, it'd be nice if every school kid had that opportunity, but, uh, there's a lot of logistics involved, but, but that sort of, that sort of education is the best. Also with all the years of study, the best practice in a rip, you, you mentioned a bit earlier that floating is, there's all different ways you can get yourself out of a rip, but 
primarily do you think there should be just one message, especially with Australia now? We've got such a multicultural, diverse person that lives here now. I guess, yeah, it's well. If I if if you asked me if I was to promote one message, which I do in all my talks, at the end it's it's relax and flow, right? If you had to pick one thing, that's what I would say, and it makes a lot of sense because one, as we mentioned, you're conserving energy, gives you time to think, gives you time to signal for help, you, you reduce the chances of exhaustion. It just makes a lot of sense. Other than, well, but I always back up and I say, well, actually, the message we should be promoting is don't get stuck in a rip in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. If people understood it, that they wouldn't get themselves in that trouble at the beginning. So that's a, a good message. And, and on top of that, one thing I was, you know, I've given these science, I've given these community talks to the public and schools for many years. And, and my message at the end was always, you know, you don't cross the road without looking both ways. And you should never go to the beach, any beach, whether it's patrolled or not, without stopping and thinking about beach safety, right? And you, you might not know what a rip is, but just think, you know, geez, are these waves, are they, are they okay? Or is it too much for me? Are there rips here? Do I even know what a rip is? Are there any lifeguards? And, and that's where I think we need to get to is really ingrained in our culture. Always think about beach safety. Is there, and, and the Surf Life Saving is, has started up this, this Think Line sort of campaign and it kind of has those same messages, which I think is great. You know, go to the beach, stop, think about what's going on, have a plan. Like if someone gets in trouble, what are you going to do? And I think that's that's what we got to do. I mean, we're a beach-going nation that has to be ingrained in us. Yep. And I think the messaging should be all consistent as well across the board. Everyone that's doing water safety messaging and water safety education, it should be all a you know a, a generic messaging, and uh, that will help, I think, get into all the you know the people that move to Australia because they a lot of them are coming from countries that have no idea about the ocean. Yeah, I mean that's right. But you know what it's like. There's so many different people. It's trying to trying to come up with a generic message is tough, and they did it in the states, right? They did it in the U.S. They came up with the break the grip of the rip program, but that took years to get everyone on board. You know, I talked to those people, and they said it was the most painful process. But we've just done a study of um, multicultural groups, um, sort of people from Southern Asian backgrounds, so India, Nepal, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankans, and uh, we did surveys of of what they they know about beaches. And it's particularly the new migrants, you know, people who've been here for less than five, five years, they're the ones that are more likely to go to beaches. They can't swim. They don't really know much about, well, they don't know anything about rip currents, but when they go to the beach, they're going to enter the water. And, you know, there's another push to within those groups is that we kind of need to get champions within those communities to sort of champion the beach safety message the right way, like culturally in culturally appropriate ways. And also to get them get them motivated to do swimming lessons, but we need to provide them with the resources and the opportunities. Is there anywhere people can go to, like your websites, to check out the rips and, and, and get more of an understanding? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a bunch of websites. It's funny you mentioned that. My, my, I've got this website, scienceofthesurf.com, and it was so outdated. So it's just been revamped. I was working on it today. And it's got, you know, it eventually will have what I call the rip of the month. And I've been doing this rip of the month feature where I put up a picture of a rip, either mine or somebody sent it to me, and I talk about it and how you can spot it. And that's been going on since 2009. So there's about 155 pictures of rips. So if you want to have a clockwork orange experience and just immerse yourself and brainwash your kids, just, just go through that. Um, and then there's links to videos we've done about rips and waves. But also, um, there's a new website called ripcurrentsafety.com, 
And that came out of a documentary that was made on Rip Currents called Rip Current Heroes by Jason Marklin, a documentary maker on the Gold Coast. And it was a full-length doco shown on the National Geographic Channel and eventually got shown on Qantas and Jetstar. And he's put together this website with all these great clips. There's a, there's a high school education guide. It's I think it's the best. It's just got great content on it. But, you know, there's this there's, there's material out there. There's lots of the beach safe, right? You know, there's there's lots of places to look for rip current material as long as you find the right stuff because, as you know, there's a lot of crap on the internet. Yeah, that's that's 100% correct. Uh, thanks, Rob, for that. But at the end of the interview, mate, I do uh, five fun facts. So you can answer them any way you want. There's no right or way. I'm gonna, I'll throw the, the five questions at you and, uh, right. and see what you come out with. Okay. All right. The first one is, what ridiculous thing has someone tricked you into doing or believing? Well, <laughs> I'm pretty gullible. Um, so there's been a lot. But I think having talked about my early days scuba diving, doing all these experiments, my first year scuba diving, I was pretty naive. And we were with these Californian academics. They convinced me that it would be much better if I used a three-foot snorkel when I was diving <laughs> and stuff. And I said, oh, yeah, that would come in really handy, you know, because especially we're in shallow water. He goes, yeah, yeah, three-foot snorkels are good. And, of course, I, I totally believed it. He said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go and get you one. But, of course, using a three-foot snorkel would be almost impossible to breathe. But I totally believed that for about a year. Yeah, but I was, I was the rookie. I was getting hazed, so they got me there. <laughs> what TV catchphrase do you most enjoy using? Right. Okay. Um, don't watch much TV anymore. But I used to use one a lot when I was lecturing. Well, I still am lecturing. Do you remember South Park? Is South Park still on? No, I remember it, but I haven't. I don't know if it's still on anymore. So South Park was this cartoon, kind of like a, a coarse version of The Simpsons, right? And it has this teacher character who'd always go, he'd explain stuff, and you go, okay, okay. So whenever I was lecturing and explaining concepts, I would just go, so so the waves are formed by wind, okay. <laughs> that's probably that's probably it. Okay. But where is the most smelling place that you've ever been? Smelling as in stinky? Yeah, stinky. New Zealand. Yep. <laughs> and, and not Rotorua. I mean, Rotorua, if you've ever been to Rotorua and all those geothermal areas, they stink because of the geothermal stuff, that sort of rotten egg, um, sulfur smell. But that's almost enjoyable. But, but I remember I went to go into Kaikoura in the South Island to the seal colonies. And, man, those seals, they just come up. They just lay in their waste and, and they just roll around in their own crap and it stinks. Like it's almost un, unenjoyable. That stink. But tell me a time you failed and what you learned from it. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I have totally failed at teaching my kids how to turn off the lights when they leave a room. <laughs> but I think, yeah, okay. I mean, one example, again, having talked about the scuba diving experience we did earlier on, I remember once we do these experiments and you'd lay out all these cables going to instruments offshore, like 100, 200 meters. And at the end of the experiment, you had to get the cables back. And the, the last experiment I did, they were all buried under a meter of sand. And you had to get this, this discharge pump in a boat and the divers would blast it away like a fire hose. And they were worth a lot of money and there was a lot of pressure to get them out. And this last experiment, days and days and days we worked and I was kind of in charge of getting it out. And I sort of thought, yeah, I'll get it out. But I just reached a point where I couldn't. And I just thought, this ain't happening. And I remember walking out of the water, past all the scientists yelling at me, saying, what's going on? I just got in the van, went back to our accommodation and turned on the baseball game. And I think sometimes you just got to realize you, you, there's only so much you can do. You can put in your best effort 
Um, but it, 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 some things just aren't going to work out and it's okay to fail sometimes. What's the worst commercial you've recently seen and why is it so bad? Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> well, I tend to mute the commercials because they are so annoying. <laughs> But we've been watching this reality show alone on SBS On Demand. You know, they dump off these people in the middle of nowhere and they got to survive. And then it goes to a commercial. And every single commercial is the same frigging commercial. It's this, it's, I think it's NRMA and they got this, this, this person, we call him Pineapple Head, who's got this nuclear hairstyle. And you, after a while, when you see it a million times, it has the opposite effect. Like you, 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 you would rather die than, than endorse that product or use that product. So that's the pineapple head commercial rob great answers mate uh very well done hopefully uh you know we can continue in in saving people's lives in rips and it's been a, a fantastic and magnificent job that you've been doing over the years to you know i've learned a lot from you as well um as well as being a lifeguard so it's been very knowledgeable and uh thanks for all your work and plenty of people out there are, are glad you do what you do yeah, thanks, Bruce. And it's always been great working with the lifeguards. I, I love, I have so much respect for the lifeguards having seen them in action. And yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll work together in the future for sure. Yeah. Cheers, Matt. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's mailbag is from Gemma and she is from New Zealand. The question is, have the crowds always been big at Bondi or has it only happened since Bondi Rescue? Well, Gemma, crowds have always been around at uh, Bondi since the early 1900s. Uh, a lot of people would travel to the beach for the day, for the weekend, uh, because back in those days it was a horse and cart, uh, which then went to cars and now we've got uh, obviously your uh, buses and trains to get people to the beach. But Yes, back in the day, plenty of people, you know, that 20, 30,000, and nothing's changed to today. Probably got less crowds over the last year or two due to COVID, and we haven't had any international tourists. So that's probably reduced our crowds by 50%. But Bondi will be back to its best very, very soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.